How's everybody doing? Good, good. Open up to Matthew chapter 6. Humans are pretty interesting. I think people are, the way our minds work, our attitudes are pretty interesting. One of the things that I think is really interesting is how easily we can take certain things for granted. Um, You know, I mean, just think, even something as basic as feeling healthy, feeling good. You don't realize how good it feels to feel good until you don't feel good. Like, until you're sick and then you just miss, oh, if I could only feel better. But what are some other things? What are some things that we easily take for granted? Air conditioning. Air conditioning, for sure. Yes, absolutely. But I skipped that week wisely. But from what I understand, there's a few weeks ago that you realized how uncomfortable Wednesday night is without air conditioning, right? Fox. Fresh running, or clean running water. Yes, it's, oh man, I mean like we literally waste that stuff, right? Because for us it's like, eh, whatever. But there's like, well, I don't remember the exact number. There's something like 700 million people in the world who don't have access to clean water. Autumn. Um, just lost it. That's all right. If it comes back, tell us. Food. Food. Yeah, like, um, it. We just, again, take it for granted. All right, last one. Going to church. Going to church, yes. And, and like, you uh, got a taste for how much you took it for granted during the whole quarantine period, like the first few months where it it was so hilarious to think about, to look back on it. And, And, like, if somebody came to your house, you're like, hey, don't come past the sidewalk, right? Like, don't, even when we went, I think we went and dropped off a lot of your, like, those, uh, gift basket things for a lot of you like we waved at you from like 50 yards away looking back kind of funny right but um things you take for granted here's one of the things that we take for granted that is so astonishing it's exactly what jesus is going to teach us about tonight prayer we take prayer for granted think about what prayer is like if i'm gonna give you a cliche illustration but what if Who's who's the most powerful person you can think of? Well, outside of God. Uh, currently, Putin. Putin. Okay, Vladimir Putin. All right, there you go. Like, imagine if you had direct access to Vladimir Putin. That's just a weird example. Let's, you get the point, right? Like, imagine just if there was a celebrity, somebody famous that, like, you, you could just text them anytime you want. Call them up anytime you want. They wanted to talk to you. Like, if you didn't talk to them, like, in a while, then they give you a call and they're like, hey, why haven't you been calling? What's going on? Like, could you imagine that? Yet, as Christians, we've got something infinitely greater. Just, if you could only get your mind around the reality that you have instant access anytime, any day, all the time, to the sovereign creator of this universe, the infinite God of this universe. Your mind, that should just blow your mind. It's such a remarkable and unfathomable thing, yet we take it for granted every single day. So often we take it for granted. And Jesus is going to talk directly to us about that subject tonight, prayer. And last week, we started Matthew chapter 6. It's right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so often through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus 
is really driving at heart issues. What should the heart, the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God look like? What should drive their behaviors? What should be their passion? Um, he, he showed us just at a very deep level what true righteousness was all about. It wasn't just, it's not just about the externals. It's not simply about not murdering people, not physically harming people, but do you love people or do you harbor hatred, which is the root that leads to murder? Jesus focuses so much on our heart attitudes through various, at various angles throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, he is focused specifically on the heart attitudes, the motivations that are behind our good deeds, that are behind our outward good actions. And he introduces his principle with just a simple verse, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. What Jesus says in this verse, in verse 1, is going to be his theme that he focuses on throughout verse 18 in chapter 6. The goal of obedient living is not to lift yourself up. It's not so that people will look at you and think, oh, you're such a good person, or you're such a spiritual person, or you're such a godly person. And we talked last week how that temptation, it is hard to get rid of. Even in our best moments, when we look in our heart, we so often see that pride trying to sprout up and that hope like, oh, I hope somebody looks at me or I hope somebody realizes how much I'm doing or I hope they think I'm doing a good job. We can all feel that temptation and it's something we have to fight constantly. The point that Jesus is making in verse one that he carries through 18 is that if we're doing this for the praises of men, then just as he says, we have no reward with our Father who is in heaven. And one of the things we talked about last week was how living for the praises of men and for the recognition and the glory of men is a very vain thing to live for. It's, it's temporary. The same people that lift you up are the same people that can pull you down. As followers of Christ, our desire should be for those things that are eternal, pleasing our Father, glorifying our Father, and eternal rewards, heavenly rewards from our Father. And this truth, what he teaches in verse 1 about practicing your righteousness before men to be recognized by them, that can be applied to so many things in life. I think as you just think through your life and the different aspects of it, how you uh, live at school, how you live in just kind of whatever extracurricular activities you're in or whatever hobbies you're in or as you get jobs. There's really no end to the different ways in which we live out the Christian life, the different ways which we're salt and light in this world. And so what Jesus teaches in verse 1 can apply to just every single area of our lives. But Jesus gives three specific examples what we looked at in verses 2 through 4 last week when it came to giving, giving to the poor. What we'll look at tonight, verses 5 to 15, on prayer. And next week's lesson, verses 16 to 18, on fasting. But for all of them, Jesus is driving at the same point. 
our outward acts of obedience are not to be done with an attitude or a desire for self-exaltation, but for the purposes of loving and glorifying God. So let's read how he applies this principle to prayer. Let's just read verses 5 through 15, our whole passage for tonight. Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We're going to look at three different, we're going to break this down into three different sections. First, we'll look at our first part, what prayer is not about. Second, what prayer is about. And third, the model for prayer. Very similar to what Jesus did in verses 2 through 4 when he talked about giving. He gave first, here's how you shouldn't do it. How the hypocrites, or uh, I think, who was it? The, um, uh, yeah, he, they lab- he labeled them the hypocrites in verse 2 also. Um, he said, this is how you should do it. And he does the same thing with prayer. First, he shows us what prayer is not about, then what prayer is about. And then he gives us a model of prayer. So we'll start with, first of all, what prayer is not about. And the first thing he shows us, again, completely in line with what he's been teaching here. What, the first thing he shows us prayer is not about is self-glorification. Prayer is not about self-glorification. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corner so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. A hypocrite, hypocrite is somebody who, for deceptive purposes, they give an outward appearance of being one way when internally there's somebody different. Right. Sometimes we define a hypocrite as somebody who says one thing, but then does the other. So like maybe they say, hey, don't leave your trash. Or, you know, if Alejandro's up here knocking back Dr. Pepper cans all all, uh, lesson long, we'd call him a hypocrite. Right. Because he's telling you not to have your Dr. Pepper can up here. But hypocrite. That's that's one definition. Another way of looking at it and really what's applying to the lesson that Jesus has for us here, hypocrite is somebody who purposely gives an outward appearance, wants to deceive people to, into thinking they're one way, but inside 
they're very different. So uh, here, Jesus calls these people hypocrites because externally, they want to give this impression that they are very spiritual. They're very in tune with God. But internally, they're very self-absorbed. Internally, they are very prideful. And self-absorption and pride does not mix with true godliness, with true spirituality. So Jesus here labels them as hypocrites. When they pray, they want everybody's attention. They want everybody looking at them, everybody recognizing, look how spiritual that guy is. Look how great his prayer is. He says when they're in the synagogue. So we would equate that. We could easily equate that to just our church. The synagogue was the place of corporate worship for first century Jews, the primary audience of Jesus. Synagogue was their place of worship. For us, you could just plug church in there. The hypocrite is in church, and when they pray, oh, they're just hoping. They're hoping that the pastor calls on them. Hey, why don't you close us out in prayer? Yes. They, they got called on, and they want everybody just to be amazed at how good they are at praying and how spiritual they are. Or they're out on the street corners. The point here is they're trying to get themselves into a highly public, highly visible place. So again, everybody can see and recognize just how spiritual they are. Jesus, we're going to go through the, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer here, verses 9 to 15. We're going to go through it, but we, we read it already. We just read it. And at first reading... Did anybody see anything in the words of Jesus there, his model on prayer? Did anybody see anything about self-glorification? About lifting up oneself? No, absolutely not. Already, if you've just skipped ahead and just at a first glance at the Lord's Prayer, you recognize the hypocrites. They have it wrong. You can tell just at first glance that prayer is about worshiping God, praising God, about expressing your faith in him in total reliance on him. And when it comes to seeking the favor of men, Jesus repeats the lesson from verse one, the lesson we saw at the the very beginning of chapter six. He repeats it here, the, the reward that the... Men pleasers got in verse 1, same thing at the end of verse 5. Truly I say to you, these hypocrites who want the recognition of men, they have their reward in full. God isn't pleased with self-righteous, prideful displays of religiosity, right? When you pray to please men, you are not pleasing the Father. By praying to please men, you might get whatever fleeing, temporary, vain rewards come with the praises of men. People might think you're spiritual. Is that what they mean by you've gotten your reward in full? Yeah. Like you've gotten your temporary reward, but you haven't gotten it from God? That's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you might get that reward, right? Like people might actually think, oh, hey, he is a spiritual guy. 
you might get the praises of men. But the point that all of Scripture makes for us is, hey, set your mind on things above. The, 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 the praises of men are fleeing. Our goal when we pray is to please the Father. Jesus then gives a second, um, a second example here of what prayer is not about. In verse um, 5, it, or I'm sorry, he says in verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. What Jesus is saying here, the second one, prayer is not a formula to force God into action. It's not a formula to force God into action. In verse 5, he labeled those praying in the wrong way as hypocrites. Here, he labels them as Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, again, can have two different meanings in the New Testament. On one hand, it could, what, what's a Gentile? A non-Jew, right? It could just be a technical term for somebody who is not a Jew. Sometimes, though, and here, what Gentile means is somebody who is outside of the people of God. Because the Jews are God's people, right? They're, he's, they're God's chosen people. And so when somebody was said to be a Gentile, what you could be saying and what Jesus is saying here is they are people who are, uh, are outside of God's people. And, and so uh, the, when, what Jesus is teaching against here is really this mentality that teaches almost like a genie in the bottle kind of mentality towards prayer. The idea that the goal of prayer is to get God to do something for you and to manipulate him and even to sometimes repeat formulas, almost magic spells that force God into doing things or thoughtless, mindless prayer. If I examine my own life, Go ahead, Sage. Yeah, we, we talked about that last week, right? But so sometimes people treat giving in that way. Like, hey, I'm going to give God this to force this. Sometimes, though, we treat prayer that way. It's a, let me show you a few times in my own life where I've fallen into this problem. Um, first example I can think of growing up. I went to a Catholic school in kindergarten. And every day we had to repeat the Lord's Prayer. And I had no idea what I was talking about. Like, I just stood up. I memorized the Lord's Prayer, and I repeated it. I thought, hallowed be thy name was like the coolest word, single word I'd ever heard in my life. Kind of like when I learned the alphabet. I thought elemento was just one word, one letter. Like, there's just this really weird letter called elemento. Same thing with hallowed be thy name. I thought it was just like this really odd word. I had no idea what it was. And in retrospect, I did it to please my teachers. In no way was God pleased by my mindless repetition of the Lord's Prayer. Um, or my grandmother told me, like, hey, every night before you go to bed, you pray. Uh, Lord, I lay me down, to, or as I lay me down to sleep, I pray to the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray to the Lord my soul to take. I repeated that every night because my grandmother told me to. I don't want to, I mean, if I die, I don't want to go to hell, right? So I'm going to say that prayer. But in retrospect, 
that's that meaningless, thoughtless repetition. And then even in high school, I got to a, a stage or just before I went to sleep, you know, I just wanted my, my slate to be clean. So I just say, you know, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And I was done. Like, that's not real confession. That's not, that's just my mind seeing prayer as this tool that I can manipulate God with. As if it's just some kind of, I repeat this magic spell, I repeat this chain of words, and now God has to do something. I forced his hand. And in those circumstances, I've completely missed the point of prayer. But so much of religion is like this. Your son is sick, so you go see the priest. And the priest says, okay, well, you need to go home and do this and repeat these prayers, and God may heal your son. And so, again, it's this genie in the bottle um, approach to prayer, this mindless repetition, uh, this formulaic approach, uh, as if it's just some kind of magical spell that forces... um, God's hand to do something. And those are not the kind of prayers that have anything to do with true discipleship, with true following of Christ. In my opinion, praying on the street corner is like having a private chat with friend or family on Twitter, on the internet, in front of everyone. That's a a pretty good illustration, actually. Yeah, I could see a good place for that in a lesson at some point. Yeah. Did y'all hear that? Yes. It's like, and people do that, right? What's this? Oh, that's an applause? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so, so that's showing us, Jesus showing us what prayer is not about. But then he goes to show us what prayer is about. Our second part here, what prayer is about. So he says in verse 5, don't be doing this as a public display. Instead, in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. As Christians, think back to what we studied in Ephesians. You are taken from being enemies of God to when you come to faith in Christ, you're taken from being his enemy to being his child. And you are in this love relationship with your father. One of the points, the the earthly family has a number of points and a number of reasons that God designed it for. But one of the reasons that God gave us earthly families It's just so we could have a hint or an illustration of what our relationship to God is like. So when you think of your earthly father, and so many of us, nobody has a perfect father, right? We're all sinners, which means that our fathers are going to be sinners. But we still have fathers who love us and fathers who provide for us and have that deep relationship. And that's just a glimmer or a shadow of what our relationship to God is like. Prayer is about thoughtful engagement, a thoughtful relationship with our Father. It's about 
communicating with the one that we have this new relationship with in Christ. He shows us that this is about our trust in the goodness of our Father. And the point, Jesus is not making the point here that we should never pray in public. How do we know that Jesus isn't teaching us here that we should never pray in public or that it's a sin to pray where other people can hear? Because he does it all the time. Point number one, Jesus himself often prays in public, right? Um, And he's perfect. Yep, you nailed it. That was was the best answer possible. But also stretch through the New Testament, right? Like the apostles set example for example of us of public prayer. And and when we come together in church, we often pray um, publicly. Throughout church history, they've, they've prayed publicly in corporate prayer. The point that Jesus is arguing against is the public prayer of the hypocrites who do it for prideful, self-centered purposes. Our primary audience should be God. That's who we're praying to. And what Jesus is making a strong point of here is that we should have strong, personal, private prayer lives. If the only time you are engaged in prayer is when you're at church, when Pastor Dusty's praying, or when you're in here and one of us is praying, that should not be the only time that you are engaged in prayer with God. In fact, that should be the exception. The normal pattern of your life should be constant relationship, constant prayer with the Father. Uh, John MacArthur talks about how prayer for the believer should be like breathing. Like it should just be your natural reaction to everything in life. Because your life is consumed day by day and minute by minute by walking in fellowship with God. So that as soon as a problem comes up, your first reaction is to turn to God. It's really the opposite way the world thinks. You, You know, you go in and like you've all had that teacher who tells you, oh, you better start saying your prayers. Like, for the, like is, the world te- treats it as a last resort. But no, for us as followers of Christ, the Father's the first one we go to. Because fa- prayer, the second, um, what, the second example Jesus gives of what prayer is about is prayer is about trust in our Father. So he, he says... In verse 7, um, don't go on using meaningless repetitions, for they suppose they'll be heard by God for their many words. But don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You think God is sitting up there like waiting for you to come and inform Him as to what's going on in your life or what's going on in the world? No. In fact... He knew about what's going on in your life and what's going on in this world way before you ever did, before time began. God's not sitting around waiting for you to come inform him as to what you need. What we'll talk about here in a second is that prayer is much more about us expressing and recognizing our complete dependence upon God for everything. For everything. 
And we'll touch on that more in a minute here. Um, uh, so, so let's look here at the model for prayer. Now Jesus is going to give us a model for prayer. And there's five different components that I'm going to highlight for us here in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And these are the components that should primarily make up our own prayers. Um, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list or that you have to go through and try to squeeze everything that you would ever pray about into one of these categories. But what this does clearly show us is that the model that Christ would have for us in our prayers is very different than how the world thinks of prayer. Very different how most people think of prayer. When do most people pray? When they go to bed. When they go to, okay, that's, that's a good answer to a bad question. Um, what do most people pray about? Like if you go around and say, hey, anybody got prayer requests? Um, usually about safety. Safety, yeah, all the time. When something goes wrong. Something goes wrong. Me, 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 me. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you're right. Sorry, we're not going to go everybody here. But yes, that's absolutely right. Liam, you look very like eager to say. Um, no nightmares or like ah. bad thoughts. Okay, well, you're going a little deeper there than most people do. Yeah, things would go their way all the time. Yes, right? Like, oh, yeah. Um, that, and is that stuff okay to pray for? Yes. Yes. You know, I could be wrong on this, and I'm open to people disagreeing with me, and that's fine. Some people will say, like, oh, you shouldn't pray for that. That's too vain. Or, like, that's too shallow. Like, you shouldn't pray for the good parking spot at the when you go to the grocery store. That's just a vain, shallow thing. You shouldn't pray for that. Maybe. My opinion, though, is like, I don't think anything's off limits when it comes to God. Like, I will pray about anything top to bottom in this life. There's nothing too deep, too shallow. Fuck. Like, on one hand, you have that, on one hand, you have God tells you to pray for anything, but on the other hand, you have, like, you shouldn't pray for all your stuff, because some things, like, some things you're not... Some things aren't important, and you're, there's a certain way you should pray. Some things really aren't important, but some things are. But on the other hand, there's like you could pray for anything. Yeah, it's a debatable issue, right? Like some people will tell you all sorts of different ideas on that. Like you can pray for everything, but don't expect to always have it go as you want. Yeah, so I think what you could say is if your prayer is only about the things you want in life, then what we're about to see as we look at the model that Christ gives us is that your prayer life is not healthy. One more. One thing to remember, God is not a grocery store. God is not a grocery store. Very good point. Absolutely. Yes. We'll see. Jesus is going to show us praying for the things that we need in life and for um, our, our, our needs, our daily bread, as he calls it is absolutely part of our faith in the Father, right? But the model that Jesus gives here is going to, if you compare it to um, what you generally hear people praying for, and as I examine my own life, I recognize how quickly my prayers can become self-centered or for the material things of this world to the exclusion of so many other things that Christ shows us we should be praying about. So uh, let's look at these components. The first component that Jesus gives us 
and his model is worship. Verse 9, he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That is saying, your name, God, let it be exalted. Let it be glorified. Let it be praised. God's name is to be reverenced and praised. Worship of God should be a huge component of our prayer life. It should be a regular, daily part of our prayer life. Read through the Bible. Read through the prayer lives of the people of the Bible. Read through the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with prayers of praise and worship of God. And you look at sometimes worship is about simply praising God for his attributes, his holiness, his goodness. And sometimes it's worshiping God is just expressing gratitude and thanksgiving for all the things he's done in your life. In fact, you look at like some of the Old Testament saints, you think to like Moses and in the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 34, and it's just him rehearsing God's faithfulness to him throughout his life. That's his prayer. You, you think back to parts of David's life, like, uh, I don't know, 2 Samuel 7 maybe. Um, but David, just his prayer rehearsing the faithfulness of God through his life. How often do you do that? How often do you think through just all the, and, and you're young, and these things are going to keep piling up though, where you can just think back and look at, God has been so extraordinarily faithful to me. And it causes you to worship him and to praise him and to recognize his grace because you, you, as you get older, you begin to recognize that God's faithfulness has not been because of you. And very often it's in spite of you, or is it despite you? Despite, despite your shortcomings, despite your sinfulness, you just see God's goodness. And praise becomes an increasing part of your prayer life. It starts with the fact that God is worthy of praise. God is absolutely worthy of all of our worship. And we get to consider that as his child, you get to enjoy his glory. There's so many things we admire in this world, people we might admire, but it's always from a distance, right? Or often from a distance, even if it's some great author or some great, think about like some great pastor that you know of. You've never met him, but you just admire his work from a distance. Yet with God, you're in fellowship with that glory. It's a glory that you get to, in a sense, participate in and enjoy at a deep, deep level. Gratitude Praise and worship is also good for your own soul. If you want to fight bitterness and depression and anxiety in your life, rehearse the goodness of God. Think back just to all the good. 
that he has done. And not just in your own life. That's what's amazing about studying church history and getting to know uh, other believers is the Bible tells us, hey, when you're in a church, you mourn with those who mourn, but you also rejoice with those who rejoice as you, you, you see God's goodness in the lives of the people around you. The first component from verse 9 that Jesus shows us should be a key part of our prayer life is praise, adoration, worship of God. The, part, the second part, the second component he gives us in verse 10, prayer for God's will to be done. In verse 10 he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is interesting, right? There's some interesting things. If you're really thinking about prayer and who God is and who you are, there's some things that don't immediately make sense. For example, praying for God's will to be done. Can God's will not be done? Like, is God sitting around up there like, okay, I really want to send my son back on this day? I hope they ask. No, right? Like, God's will is going to be done. Can we change God in his will? No. I I forget who it is, um, but it might be Ligon Duncan. I don't know. But he says, if I could change God with my prayers... I would stop praying. <laughs> like, I don't want to change God. I don't want to be the one who's giving God ideas or like giving God instructions or directions. Like, I make a lot of mistakes on my own in my own life. I don't want to be sharing my bad ideas with God, right? So, no, prayer is not about molding the will of God or influencing God to do something. So, why do we pray then? Why would Jesus say, why would Jesus talk about praying for God's will to be done if God's will is going to be done? Because God loves us and he, he wants to hear us. He wants to hear us pray and worship his name. Yeah, it's that fellowship. It's that relationship, right? It's like in God's grace, we get to be part of his program. It's his program, but we get to play a role. Because it makes it clear that we're that we affirm that we want that day to come when he comes back. Yes, it's it's much more about your own heart, right? It's more much more about shaping your own heart to God's will and dwelling on God's will and conforming yourself to God's will and um, lining our own heart up with God's will. And so I would agree with that completely. Those are, those are excellent answers. And that's what Jesus is telling us. A huge part of our relationship with God should be digging into his word, growing in our understanding of the mind of Christ. Second, first Corinthians chapter two, Paul says, if you're a believer, then the spirit of God dwells within you. You have the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And so you should be growing in that. 
You should be growing in your knowledge of God's will because he's given so much of it to us here in his word. We should be growing in that, and our prayer lives should be an expression of our hearts, an exercise of our hearts lining up with the will of God. Um, Again, read through Acts and read through the New Testament, and you're going to find example after example of the apostles praying for things that they knew were God's will. But it's about lining up their hearts. And so that would be really what I would challenge you with from verse 10 in application there, growing in your understanding of what God desires and in prayer, lining up your own heart with God. The third component, and probably the component that we're most familiar with, um, supplication. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Supplication, this is about us going to the Father, recognizing that we are wholly dependent upon him for everything in life. Everything. Every good thing we have comes from the Father. It goes back to, again, in verse 9, Jesus addressing God as Father. Verse 8, your Father knows what you need. A major part of prayer is understanding and expressing our complete dependence upon God. Now, natural man views complete dependence as a sign of weakness, as a bad thing. Oh, so God's just a crutch for you. Or uh, self-reliance is something that this world exalts. But this complete dependence upon God is not a bad thing. Uh, Your dependence, how good or bad it is, depends on who you're depending on. That's a horrible choice of words. A lot of too much depending there. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like the object that you're relying on dictates whether or not your complete dependence is a good thing. Dependence on the government, not a good thing, right? That's that's something you avoid. But God, he is your perfect, holy, loving father. Complete dependence on him is simply a recognition of the reality of who you are and a recognition of who he is. And it is a very, very good thing. Fourth, fourth component that Jesus gives us here, confession of sin. Confession of sin. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 1 John 1, 9, John says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. A major part of our prayer life, see, the problem with me in high school was I just said, God, please forgive me for my sins. There was no true confession. There was no true repentance. There was no true searching the scriptures and understanding, okay, what parts 
of my life are not lining up with who God wants me to be. And let me identify those parts, take it to the Father, and ask for his forgiveness. That's what true confession is. That's what true repentance looks like. Fifth, the the last component that we'll highlight here, prayer for sanctification. Prayer for sanctification. He says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is really an expression of a desire to grow in Christ-likeness. It's a desire, uh, God, as as your follower, I don't want sin. I hate sin. I want to grow in righteousness. Lead me away from my sin. Lead me towards Christ-likeness. And again, this is a prayer for God's will. First Thessalonians talks about this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. Here's an example of that. Uh, praying, Lord, lead me away from temptation. Lead me to righteousness. Now, there's a, do you all have any interesting brackets at the second half of verse? Verse 13 there, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do y'all have brackets on y'all's like mine does? Does anybody's not have that at all? Mine has a side note. Yours has a, has a side note. Yours doesn't have it at all? What version are you using? Uh, I have no clue. You don't remember? That's all right. That's okay. Um, why, what does yours say in the side note? Mine, it says, for your, it says, um, some late manuscripts um, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah, so basically the reason that's in brackets is remember when they composed the Bible. I mean, they have just tons of copies, right? And so the earliest copies, the most thought to be accurate copies of this passage actually don't have that. And so we're pretty certain that that was just kind of as people use this in church. Um, my Bible doesn't have, it doesn't, that part. It doesn't have it at all. Okay, so they just leave it out. So they say, look, we're very confident that this is not something that Matthew actually wrote, that the churches, they used this, and that was just kind of the ending that they, like we did at Countryside, right? Like if you remember being at Countryside, like, I don't know, maybe once every six weeks, Tom would recite the Lord's Prayer. And at the end, we would include that, right? So it just became a traditional thing that churches did so often that they just wrote it into there. But we feel confident. Now, should this, this is a complete side note, okay? But I think it's helpful for me. So this is like very unrelated to our lesson. Should this shake your confidence in the Bible? I'm going to tell you why it shouldn't. It shouldn't, because there are going to be people, like there's a UNC Chapel Hill, you know the Tar Hills, like Michael Jordan's old school. They have a religious studies professor there named Bart Ehrman, and he write, wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, and I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting, right? So I'm going to read this. And he go, uses this, as well as some other places similar to this, as examples of like, hey, we can't trust the Bible because, look, we've written in parts here that we know weren't part of the original manuscripts. And to me, the key part that 
invalidates his argument and makes me feel much more confident is when he says, we know they weren't part of the original manuscripts. And so some Bibles include this, some don't, but he goes through and he does highlight things like this. But again, we know, right? Like, it's like if I have a big ranch and there's like a cliff over there, that would be potentially dangerous if you didn't know about it. But I'm like, hey, there's a big cliff over there. Like, don't go near it. It's no longer that dangerous, right? Like, we know about this. And so that's why if some of you are confused, like, why is this in some Bibles and some not? It's because we know that wasn't part of the original manuscripts. But again, the fact that we feel so confident about that really reinforces my uh, trust and we can rely on our copy of the scriptures. I don't think it matters. Because the last sentence, for yours is the kingdom and the power forever, really just asserts that we recognize that he is all-powerful. So maybe yeah. if you add it on there, it's a better prayer. I don't really know. Yeah. I, I don't think There's definitely nothing wrong with what it says, right? I mean, it's a very true statement that it makes. It's just something that the early churches tagged on there because it became such a traditional part of their service. But anyhow, I just want to bring that up because I think stuff like that's interesting. And there's some, a few other places in the New Testament where we do that also. Um, but uh, now Jesus, we're, he ends here with this interesting statement, kind of like a tag-along teaching on forgiveness. Because a huge part is of the prayer model is confession of sin and acknowledgement that we're not holding bitterness against others for their sins in our own hearts. So in verse 14 and 15, he says, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive you your transgressions. Now that's an interesting statement, right? Because it almost sounds like Jesus teaching there like works type of salvation. You earn your salvation. You earn your forgiveness from God by forgiving other people. But Jesus uses these kind of hyperbolic statements pretty often in his teaching. Think about what he told the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was like, hey, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus said to him, well, you need to go sell everything you've got and come follow me. So is that Jesus, again, teaching a works type of salvation? No, it's Jesus teaching the nature of his kingdom and what the heart of followers of his, the members of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, what their hearts would be patterned after. And so Jesus also said, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Oh, repeatedly throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the teachings of Jesus, he gives us the pattern, the picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And we fall short. We fall short and we have to go for forgiveness and rely on his grace to make up for that shortcoming. But here is what I would say about what Jesus teaches. And we're going to return to this very subject when we get to chapter 18. Because in chapter 18, Jesus gives a whole parable about an unforgiving slave. And what it reflects on is that if you have a heart that refuses to forgive other people, you should be very concerned about the state of your salvation. 
are you truly a follower of Christ? Have you truly come to a place of understanding your own sinfulness and the forgiveness that is available in Christ if you refuse to forgive others? That's a huge red flag. And it's a huge red flag that Jesus is raising up for us. I would very confidently say Jesus isn't teaching here that you must earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. Jesus is not teaching that. But Jesus is absolutely teaching that the hearts of his disciples, the hearts of those who are members of his kingdom are quick to forgive others because they recognize how much they have been forgiven. And so that would be a huge warning for you for that, to take from verses 14 and 15. If you're a person who refuses to forgive others, have you come to a place where you've been forgiven by the Father? So how do we apply this? First of all, Don't lose sight of the bigger picture of what verses 1 to 18 are really all about. It's kind of hard not to lose sight of the big picture because the Lord's Prayer is just huge, right? I mean, like, it's, it's huge. So it's hard not to lose sight of the big picture. But the big picture, verses 1 to 18, are check your motives. Your, your, your life in the church, your serving, how you live, are you doing it for your own glory or for God's? Second, check your prayer habits. Like I mentioned earlier, there is something very wrong with your prayer life if it consists simply of praying on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights along with whatever leaders praying. As children of the Father, we should have deep habits of prayer of going into that inner room as he talks about, just shutting the world down around us and focusing on the Father. And when we do that, check your content. Check your prayer content. And Jesus gives us a model here. That's the primary. It's fine if you repeat this and as a prayer of yours. Like I said, we did it at Countryside. There's nothing wrong with it. Be real careful. It doesn't become mindless repetition like when I was in kindergarten. Um, be very careful of that. But the bigger picture here is Jesus has given us a model. This is what our prayers should contain. This is, this is the right way of thinking about prayer. And as you pray rightly, and as you focus on praying rightly, it shapes your heart, and it mends your heart, and it shapes your ways of thinking in your mind. Um, so with that, we're going to go to small group. We'll break up. I'm going to pray for us. And like I said, ladies... What did I say? Ladies can stay down here, and uh, guys will just circle up at our tables back there. Lord, we do thank you so much for uh, showing us how to have a relationship with you and for not leaving us wondering or guessing, but you, you give us the perfect model in Christ, and you also in Christ make up for our shortcomings so that we can have this fellowship with you. And I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, but we would recognize it for the goodness that it is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we'll do uh, 9th to 12th guys over there.
and we'll do uh, six to eight guys over there.